if uh, you parents would like the things of the Lord put on their level. Our text this morning, we're still in John 14. If you're visiting with us today, we're taking a lot of time honing in on some specific aspects of a fairly lengthy interaction Jesus had with a Samaritan woman at a well, just the two of them. So we're sort of jumping into the dialogue at uh, John, four, uh, excuse me, John 4, beginning at verse 16. Jesus is going to expose how she is satisfying her thirst for God with things that are not God, namely the many men in her life. So Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you've said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. I'm going to read several verses in the epilogue of what happens once the woman goes back to her town and the response of those in her town, and that would be John 4, 39. Many Samaritans from that town believed in Jesus because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I've ever done. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and Jesus stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we've heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. What is the fastest way to raise the ire of a fellow American? What's the fastest way to be labeled a closed-minded bigot? What's the quickest way to lose all credibility as a thinker? Tell someone you are certain there's only one way to heaven. Jesus Christ. You've been asked, probably as I know I have been, why does Jesus have to be the only way? As I think about that question, there are some underlying concerns standing behind the question. Folks are often concerned how you can be so dogmatic No one can know such things. How can you have a corner on the truth? Or naive. Don't you know that 70% of the world population is non-Christian? Or intolerant. What about all those sincere people out there that don't agree with you? Or arrogant. 
you think you're smarter and better than everybody else for claiming that. Or dangerous. You may hurt those who disagree with you. Fair concerns? I think so. In a sense, I hope to address most of them in this sermon, but I do want to spend the first part addressing the concern that, the concern that people who believe there's only one way to heaven, Jesus Christ, are dangerous. I want to respond to that concern. I think it's a serious concern. Bible-believing Christians who believe Jesus is the only way have been called dangerous to society. So here's my response. A response with two questions, acknowledging that in the history of human beings, people have been dangerous toward other people with whom they disagreed, without a doubt. I mean, isn't that the heart of all conflict and world wars? Well, I disagree with somebody, I'm coming after you. Let me respond in two ways. With this question, was Jesus a dangerous man? What do you know about Jesus? Was he dangerous? He never raised a fist at any individual. And in fact, Jesus laid down his life for his tormentors. After hours and hours of unjust torture, Jesus said this of those who were dangerous towards him. Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. Jesus, in no ways, was a dangerous individual with those with whom he disagreed or those who disagreed with him. Secondly, did Jesus teach his followers to be dangerous? No, he taught them to love their enemies, to turn the other cheek, to do good to those who persecute them. So the notion that Jesus or his followers wanted to be dangerous did not originate with them. So let's go back to the main question. Why does Jesus have to be the only way? Can we trace this notion, this rumor, back to the source? We can. The source of this claim is Jesus. He was the closed-minded person who claimed this. That's what I want to show you in this sermon. In a sense, it's an apologetic for the question, why does Jesus have to be the only way? Why do you need to know it? Number one, it's true. You need to know everything that's true. Number two, you may find yourself in a situation in this country where you lose your job for believing this. There are certainly people in our world who are being killed for believing this. You may come to a point in your life where if you believe this, it will cost you something dearly. And so we need to know, I mean really know, why we believe what we say we believe. So let's start with the text in front of us, and I want to show you three pieces of evidence why Jesus claims, that Jesus claims, to be the only Savior of the world. The little epilogue that I read in verse 42, after spending time with the people of Sychar, what do they conclude? This is indeed the Savior of the world. What, on, on what basis did they conclude that? They heard Jesus teach. They watched Jesus love. 
they concluded that based on the very message of Jesus himself. This is the Savior of the world. They might have been wrong, but they were wrong based on what Jesus said. Second piece of evidence from the text, jumping in at verses 25 and 26. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, the one who's called the Christ. When he comes, he'll tell us all things. And Jesus said to you, I who speak to you am he. He is the Messiah. In the Bible, the figure Messiah is equality with God. One way to understand the Old Testament is that the Old Testament foresees a time when the plight of humanity is so utterly desperate and so utterly bad that the only remedy is for God himself to come to earth to bring reconciliation between God and man. The Messiah is God coming in the flesh. The passage Marty read earlier illustrates it so beautifully from Isaiah 59. The Lord saw it was displeasing a sight. There was no one to intercede. So what happens? God puts on the armor and comes to earth. The only difference is, if you listen carefully, is that the Messiah didn't come dealing out recompense for sins. He came to bear the sins of his people. That's the difference in the first time around. What else did Isaiah write? Isaiah 7, we, we read this every year at Christmas. The virgin will conceive and bear a son, and you will call his name Emmanuel, God with us. Isaiah 9, a child is born to us, a son is given, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. The son is Mighty God. He's Everlasting Father, the Father of a new race, the Prince of Peace. Now, one thing's clear. Jesus' accusers got this message. They understood his claim to be Messiah, to be the only way to God, to be the Savior. They understood it very clearly. And I've got the text for you in the outline. John 5.18. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, not because he was breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. They couldn't stand the idea. They had a high, high view of the nature of God as spirit, as eternal, incomprehensible. How can a human being appear among us and call himself God? At one level, you can understand their deep consternation. John 8, 58, Jesus said to the Jews who were troubling him, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. What? Jesus is saying, a 30-year-old man, I existed before Abraham. And when Jesus, your translations say I am, it's a simple tra translation of the Greek. Ego, a me, I am. First person present to be. Ego, a, a me, I am. If you cast it into Hebrew, what word would you get? Yahweh. They knew he was calling himself Yahweh. And that's why they picked up stones to stone him, because it was blasphemous to call yourself God if you're not God. John 10, 31 to 33. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Why do you think, given what I just said? He blasphemed. He made himself equal with God. Jesus answered them, I've shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? 
The Jews answered, it's not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy because you, being a man, make yourself God. You will hear from some scholars that Jesus never claimed to be God. First of all, that's patently wrong. Secondly, the people that heard Jesus teach heard him claim to be God. And then before Pontius Pilate uh, John 19, 7, the Jews answered him, we have a law, according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. Clearly, his reputation among his peers and his enemies is he's God. The second, third piece of evidence from our text in John 4 is verse 22. Jesus says to the woman, you worship what you do not know, we worship what we know, salvation is from the Jews. Now that's pretty close-minded pretty narrow. Salvation is from the Jews. Translated, there's only one way to get to heaven, and it comes through the Jews. So, so Jesus is, has begun a discussion with this woman about worship. He has told her her worship is illegitimate, it's ignorant, she worships what she does not know. That is the case for the Samaritans, and only the Jews have true worship. And really, it's a it's a really legitimate concern. You need to know if the God you're worshiping is, in fact, the God that is or some figment of your imagination. You need to know that. If the doctor gives you a prescription for a life-threatening illness and your life's dependent on the prescription, do you get it and just double-check, yeah, this is exactly what I need? Do you double-check? Yeah. So he's saying, woman, he's saying to you, I double-check the God you believe in? Is it the God that's there? or the God of your own fashioning. Now, we're going to talk more about worship next week and the following week. For now, let's focus on this very, very narrow statement, salvation is from the Jews. Jesus is essentially summarizing what the Old Testament is all about. How is the Old Testament framed? A prophecy and a promise God made to the serpent in Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between your seed and the seed of the woman. And he will crush your head and you will bruise his heel. God is saying that earth history will travel along a hostility, a conflict, two lines of conflict. The seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. And the Old Testament basically is the unpacking of the nature of that conflict. And we find that Noah has three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And God says, I'm going to work my purposes. The seed of the woman is going to come through Shem. It is the Semitic people through which I'm going to bring the one who will defeat Satan. And all through the Old Testament, as it were, the tension is, is the line going to survive? Yes, God is faithful to his promise. God will make sure the line survives. And the question then is, who's the seed? Who's the seed? Who's the seed? You open the New Testament, Jesus is the seed. That's where it ends. Another discussion for another day, but when Jesus gets in the conflict with the Jews in John 8, he says, you're the father of the devil. Jesus annexes the Pharisees of his time as the seed of the serpent. I won't go there. It's another discussion for another day. All right, that's the first part of the sermon. Right from our text in John 4, you have a plethora of evidence that Jesus claims to be God and the only way to be saved. Are you convinced? That's good. It works for me. <laughs> 
let's go, as it were, to a robust commentary from the, from the mouth of Jesus himself on the keeping of this promise in Genesis 3.15. Theologians call it the proto-euangelion, the first announcement of the gospel. Let's go to John 14. And I want to read verses 1 through 11 again. Marty read them. Let's hear them again. Because in a sense, this is the most compact, poignant commentary Jesus makes on this question. How can there be only one way to heaven? Jesus said to his disciples, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. For in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. What is the burning desire in the heart of Jesus right now? It is ultimately to get you into his presence in paradise. That's what he longs for. And you know the way where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know the way you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you'd known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. You hear the claim to deity there? You've seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it's enough for us. Jesus said, have I been with you so long you still not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak of my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Okay. Let's ask these questions of this text. Number one, why does the issue arise in this context? How does it begin? Jesus says, don't let your hearts be troubled. He can see they are beginning to get upset because they can see a new countenance in the face of Jesus. They'd seen compassion. They'd seen anger in the clinging of the temple. They'd seen authority. They'd seen lots of different things. But in the countenance of Jesus, they're beginning to see something new. He has just told them in the prior chapter, I am going away. And Peter, one of your star apostles, is going to de deny me. Their world is being rocked. Everything they've invested in for the last three years seemingly unraveling before their eyes. And look, the question you and I always ask in a crisis is, what can I trust? Where's bedrock? What is God like? And Philip identifies that core issue for us in verse 8. Show us the Father. I think that's legitimate at one level. When, my, when your life is on the line, what do you want to know? Where's God? Who is he? Is he for me? Is anyone in control? Who's going to sustain me? Can I know God personally? They're all really legitimate questions. That's the context for this. The disciples are troubled. Second question, how does Jesus answer? You can see from my outline, he answers with unambiguous clarity. Verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. When you and I claim to have certainty that there's only one way to heaven, we are only echoing the source of the rumor, Jesus. <laughs> Verse 9, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. 
Verse 10, the Father is in me, I am in the Father. These answers are completely consistent with the purpose of John's gospel. John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All this evidence through the gospel of John, the Word is here, and the Word is God. So you can see on your outline before you, I've, I've lumped two things together for you that testify to Jesus' claim to deity. On the one hand, Jesus claimed to be that which only God is. Sinless, eternal, omnipresent, the light of the world, the bread of life, the resurrection of the life, the good shepherd, the door to heaven, the true vine, and the great I am. He claimed to be things only God is. That elevates him to this status, equal with God. And Jesus did things that only God can do. He forgave sin. He bestowed life. He's going to judge the world. He received worship. He shared God's glory. John 17, the glory I had with you from the foundation of the world. God says, I'll share my glory with no other. Jesus says, we share glory. And he demanded that men commit their lives to him. Now, if I stood before you and I said, I'm God. You commit your life to me. I'm the way to heaven. You should laugh me off the stage. Because there's nothing in me that proves that claim. Jesus claimed it and he backed it up. No wonder, John 13, 20, whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. So in all the world religions, there's a pointer. The person in the world religion points the way to God, points to the teachings of God, points away from himself. This is God. Jesus has no pointer in his hand. He is God. He is salvation. He is life. He's doing this. It's me, 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 me. There's no pointer. You have him, you have God. You have him, you have salvation. You have him, you have the life. And his disciples got this message. They testified it even at the cost of their own lives. Acts 4.12, there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Where did they get such an idea? The lips of Jesus. The work of Jesus. Paul writes in 1 Timothy 2, there's one mediator between God and man. The man, Jesus Christ. Where did he get such a notion? From Jesus himself. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. There's no religious figure that says, you know, in the future, all knees are going to bow to me. Muhammad didn't say that. Buddha didn't say that. Confucius didn't say that. They didn't say that. Jesus did. Paul preaching on Mars Hill, God is sixth today in which he will judge the world in righteousness through one man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all by raising him from the dead. Hebrews 1.3, he is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. And he who has the Son has the life. Who does not have the Son does not have the life. I just tell you my own experience, parenthetically, I was about 28 years old or something, and I got a knock on the door, and two visitors were there to share their religion with me. And they challenged my view that Jesus was God, and they knew their scriptures pretty well. I was a little rattled. I really was. I'd always believed in the deity of Jesus. But they called my belief into question using Scripture itself. And so I went in and I dug in. And on the heels of that, there's not a doubt in my mind. My head will roll. 
for the deity and the exclusive salvation of Jesus Christ. So I guess one of the invitations, one of the purposes of the sermon is, I want you to be in that, have that same kind of conviction. Third question, what are the options for understanding Jesus' claim? I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. How do we understand this? Let me give you uh, four options. Number one, Jesus never said this. So that, so representative of that view in more recent times is the Jesus Seminar. These are scholars working out of um, Bright uh, Divinity School in Fort Worth, Texas. And they start with a presupposition that the Bible's fundamentally unreliable, presupposition, and likely a presupposition, you know, there's no such thing as having a corner on the truth. And then they dip into the Gospels and they decide what did Jesus say, what did Jesus not say. This saying sounds really narrow-minded, so it probably doesn't make the cut. Jesus never said this. A lot of people believe that. He didn't say this. So I would raise these three questions with you if you believe Jesus never said this. Why is this, this statement, I'm the only way, completely in concert with everything else Jesus taught and did? Completely in concert with it. Why was Jesus crucified for this claim? He was killed for blasphemy, for making himself equal with God. And why are his followers repeating this when they themselves... Bible-believing Jews had the highest regard for Yahweh, for his name, for who he is in his character. They wouldn't dream of thinking, oh, God has become a person like us, unless it was true right before their very eyes. Option two, Jesus said this, but the correct interpretation is universalism. This is the view of some in uh, theologically liberal churches, I remember talking to somebody in my backyard in Charlottesville years and years ago who espoused this view I'd never heard of. I said, wow, that's, that's interesting. So this view goes like this. Jesus is the only way to God, but there's many ways to Jesus. Jesus is the only way to God, but there's many ways to Jesus. So the death of Jesus saved the whole world, irrespective of your beliefs. Anybody see the book by Rob Bell about five years ago, Love Wins? That's this view, isn't it? And look, I mean, what, what is it? This is justification by death alone. You die and Jesus takes care of the rest. And how attractive. I don't have to disagree with you. I don't have to step on your toes. Every turns out, everything, everything turns out fine in the end, except the Hitlers of the world. What do you do with them? I mean, the really bad people and the people that hate God and they hate people who love God. What do you do with them? Is there no justice to mete out at the end of time? Do you really want to sacrifice justice for a temporary peace? And if Jesus gets it all figured out in the end, why does he tell people to flee the wrath to come if there is no wrath to come? Why do evangelism if the death of Jesus saves everyone? Our missionaries bring them home, save them money. And I promise you this, there is no martyr that has died for their faith because they said there are many ways to God, there are many ways to God in Jesus. No martyr died for such theological coleslaw. I don't know what else to call it. Yes, I do, but I can't say it up here. That was bad. Erase that part of it, Frank, or wherever you are, brother. No, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. 
Third option, I'm moving right along. We're going to get through this sermon. Third option, we're just teasing out what are the possibilities that Jesus, he never said it. He said it, but, you know, third possibility. Christ said this, but the correct interpretation is relativism. In other words, you've had people say, oh, I'm glad you love Jesus. Jesus is the way for you. But for the Hindu, for the Buddhist, for the Muslim, their religious leader is the way for them. Very popular in our day. And what's the classic way of illustrating this? The mountain illustration. God's at the top of the mountain. There are many different paths up the mountain, all going to the same God. And God allows everyone to express their convictions about who God is within their own cultural context. What matters is your sincere devotion to God as you find him, and let's all get along. And look, I'm all for the let's all get along stuff. And the reasoning goes, how can three-quarters of the human race be wrong about God? As if we decided to, ter- to determine truth by counting noses. When did humanity start determining what was true by counting noses? You don't do that with anything else in your life. So, religious relativism presupposes God owes everyone a chance, people are basically sincere, all religions get you to God, and all the world religions exist with God's blessing. Jesus taught just the opposite of every one of those presuppositions. I don't have time to go into it, you need to take my word for it, just read the first eight chapters of John, you'll find there what he says about people's sincere devotion, no matter. Jesus taught the opposite. As I told you earlier, the Pharisees, the people closest to biblical revelation on the earth at the time, the Pharisees, Jesus said, you're sons of the devil. That's how sincere you can be and so far wrong. Sincerity makes no one right. So here are the problems as I see it with relativism. First, it makes no sense because all religions do not teach the same thing. They don't. Particularly on the nature of God. I'm espousing the biblical Christian view of God that no other religion believes. God became a man. His name is Jesus. And in respect to salvation, all the world religions basically are a bargain. You keep the rules and God owes you. Christianity is just the opposite. He kept the rules for us in Jesus, and so we're saved by grace. It is only grace and mercy and the love of God that we are saved. Christianity is the only religion of salvation by a substitute. All the other religions are advice. Do this and God will accept you. Christianity is an announcement. Jesus did this for you. So now you live this way. And Christianity is the only religion of the underdog. What about people who just say, you know, I can't be good enough for God. I need a savior. I need someone to live righteously for me. Only Christianity promises that. Dispense with the notion all religions basically teach the same thing. That's even stinkier, coleslaw. The other problem with it is religious relativism is a closet absolutist. Let me explain. For someone to say, oh, really, there's just one God and all the different religions going to the same place, presupposes they know what God ultimately is really like. So it comes out in a bumper sticker that I saw years ago that said this, God is too big to fit into any one religion. That would be the bumper sticker of, uh, of religious relativism. And what question do you want to ask the people? So if you have that bumper sticker, I would like to ask you this question. How do you know? 
Who told you that? Where did you find that out? And that is a distinct view of God, that he is, in fact, too big to fit into one religion. That means it's a religion. And so is that religion too big to fit? Is God too big to fit in your religion? Yes, yes. The third reason I don't believe in moral uh, religious relativism is it fails the test of the evidence. Jesus rose from the dead. It's not been disproven. It's a fact. Without that fact, Paul says, we're a bunch of idiots. Really? Your faith is ultimately based in the fact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ following his death. And finally, religious relativism makes no sense of the claims or the life of Jesus. You'll often hear from religious relativists, I like Jesus as a good moral teacher. No, you don't, because Jesus claimed to be God. So you can't have it both ways. You can't like Jesus as a great moral religious teacher and say he was lying when he claimed to be God, because that wouldn't make him a good religious moral teacher. You all know C.S. Lewis quote on this in Mere Christianity, may I share it? C.S. Lewis says, dispense with this notion of Jesus being merely a good moral teacher. Because if he isn't, then he is a liar for claiming to be God, if he's not God. He's a liar for claiming it. Or, worse, he's a lunatic for claiming it and believing it if he's not God. But the truth is, he is Lord. He claimed it and he proved it. Your only three options with Jesus are liar, if he's a liar, certainly don't follow him, Lunatic, don't follow him if he's a lunatic, or he's exactly who he claimed to be, the Lord of glory and the Lord of salvation. Follow him, he claimed it. Last, last option, and then we're finished. Kind of a long sermon this morning. Last option, Jesus is the only way. What did he mean to communicate by saying, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. I'll, I'll try to make this short. Jesus is the way. In the context, he's the way to the Father's house. He's the way to paradise. He's the way to the presence of God. What sets this up? We were made for the presence of God in paradise. We forfeited it. The way back in was guarded by swords. In other words, sinners, if you've ever sinned, you can't make a claim on the presence of God without undergoing the sword. Jesus Christ underwent the sword of judgment on the cross to make the way to the Father safe. He ushers you in there because he earned the right through his perfect righteousness, his death on the cross, and his resurrection. If you trust him by faith, what is true of Jesus is true of you. That righteous life has been offered to God. The death for your sins has been paid by Jesus. Jesus has raised you up to his resurrection. He is the way to God. There's no other way. He's the truth. Simply speaking, he reveals God to us. He reveals what God is like. He reveals what you're supposed to be like. He's the true God. Look no farther, Philip. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. How can you not see this? I've been with you so long. Is it not obvious that the things I do, the things I say, the way I act, it's God? But you've got to appreciate how the disciples struggle to wrap their minds around that, making the belief in this claim all the more remarkable. I'm the truth of who God is. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. John 12, 45, whoever sees me, sees the, uh, sees the one who sent me. And he says, I'm the life. I'm the life. Because you and I were born sinners, 
we have no spiritual life within us. We have bios, we have biological life, but we lack the thing we need to get us to heaven, zoe. It's the other Greek word for life. Zoe, the indestructible life that is in God himself and in Jesus, and that he gives us by the Holy Spirit. Jesus, through his cross and resurrection, earned the right to plant in us dead people life because he wants us to be with him. He wants to save us. He wants to enjoy us. He wants us to know his love, enjoy his presence, savor his goodness. And so we were dead in our sins and we were filthy and through his blood on the cross, he cleanses us. He takes the wrath through our sins to make his enemies his friends. And when we were dead in sin, he makes us alive. I'm the life. So how do we conclude the sermon? When you believe that, does that make you dangerous or humble and grateful and gentle and patient and kind? I was dead, he made me alive. I was filthy, he cleansed me by his death. I was unrighteous, he's given me all the righteousness I ever need to stand right now, perfect in my Father's eyes. Does that make me dangerous or profoundly concerned for the needs of other people? I, it wouldn't occur to me to think I'm better than somebody else in light of those wonderful facts. And you see, that's what makes the church of Jesus Christ the most inclusive community on the earth. It's a place for people who have nothing to give God. We're all equal. We're desperate. The only thing we can give God is our need of salvation. <laughs> and we receive the life of God himself simply by trusting him. This is the, the most inclusive community on the face of the earth. You don't have to keep the rules to get in here. You have to know you can't keep the rules. Isn't it beautiful? You gotta love the economy of God. Praise him for Jesus, right? The way, the truth, and the life. You see me, you've seen the Father. Do we believe it? Let's pray. These are fantastic claims, Lord. They're especially alarming in modern ears and in a progressive culture. It is true. We believe this and are, are, are often, not always often, deemed as potentially dangerous. No, Jesus, you suffered the danger of facing the wrath of God in our place. You bore it. You underwent the knife to bring us into paradise. How? How could we ever not be filled with love and compassion and concern for people who don't know this? So make Wallace increasingly a body of people concerned for other desperate people that they'd know this wonderful Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.